Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to Luke's Gospel. And this morning, we're reading from Luke chapter 10. We're picking up our reading at verse 25, and we're reading down to verse 37. You'll find our Bible reading this morning on page 869 of the Pew Bibles, page 869, Luke chapter 10. And it's the very famous story and then parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to be thinking about this story later in our service. It's very familiar to us, but we want to pray that God would speak to us and that we would come to this story with fresh eyes this morning. So the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, we're beginning at verse 25, page 869 of the Pew Bibles. And this is God's infallible word to us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, an o- pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to think about the parable of the Good Samaritan for a few moments together this morning. That's page 869 of your Pew Bibles. Uh, Page 869. And as you're turning to the passage, uh, let's pray that God would help us understand it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can rely on it. We thank you that it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray that as we come to a really familiar story this morning, that you would help us to come with fresh eyes, that you would come by your spirit and help us to to understand this parable in a new and, and fresh way, and that you'd help us to live it out. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're returning to our series on Luke's Gospel. We went back to Luke in August and then we took a short break to think about the church and the eldership during uh, late August, September. Uh, This morning as we come back to Luke, we're turning to what is probably the most famous parable told by the Lord Jesus while he was on earth. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in terms of Bible stories that uh, that are recognized and known, this is probably top of the list. Uh, We live in days of biblical illiteracy, 
And that is to say that people don't know their Bibles as well as they used to or, or, or as, well, as well as they should. And that's just talking about Christians. But people know this story. Nowadays, so many people who aren't Christians and who have a limited knowledge of the simplest and most basic content of the Bible know even this story. This parable has been referenced by public speakers who come from a secular perspective. It's consistently used by news media as they report on crimes or on people who have stopped crimes. I did a Google search of the words Good Samaritan this week and put the news filter on and it generated about 10,200 results in 0.35 seconds. The point is that people use this story as a reference for outstanding moral qualities or for an heroic act of bravery. Is that what the parable's about? Does it just teach us a moral lesson? Be nice to everyone and treat other people in the way that the Good Samaritan treats the victim in this story. That's the way the world interprets the story. And to be honest, it's not a particularly good interpretation. The church as a whole, though, hasn't done a very good job of interpreting this parable either. And let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of the early church fathers, so one of the early leaders of the Christian church, was a man called Origen. And he lived sometime between 185 and 253 AD, so a little bit after the life of Jesus, when Jesus was on earth. And Origen believed that this parable was an allegory. And what that means is that he read the story and brought out a hidden meaning. He said that all the characters and all, all the places and all the things in the story represented certain things to do with the Christian faith. This is how Origen interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, the man who is robbed is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world, the robbers are hostile powers or demonic forces, the priest represents the law, the Levite represents the prophets, the Samaritan is Christ, the man's wounds are disobedience, the animal is the Lord's body, the inn is the church, and the Samaritan's return is the second coming. It's a crazy interpretation. It doesn't take account of the story at all, and it completely misses the mark. More modern interpretations of the story have focused on the moral lessons that can be taken from it. People, preachers even, will point to this story and say, this is the essence of Christianity. As Christians, we should be showing compassion on those in need. We shouldn't be concerned with doctrine and things like that. We should just be nice people who are nice uh, and, and we, should, we should be kind to people who are different from us. You've maybe heard watery, woolly sermons like that on this passage. There have been a large number of dishwater sermons preached on this story. And the danger with those kinds of sermons and that kind of thinking generally is that Christianity is reduced to nothing more than a social cause. As we've hopefully seen over the past couple of months through our series on the church and the eldership, the primary task of the church, its ministers and its people, isn't social justice, it's soul care. Social justice is important, but the primary task of the church is caring for, for the people of God and sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. But to so many people, the Christian faith is simply just a, a fluffy sense of being a good person. Christianity, to so many, is about being nice, doing nice things, having a nice time in church, and generally being quite helpful to others. Jesus was a nice man. He told sweet stories and just loved everyone. We should be like him. 
One of the problems with coming to a familiar story like this is that we come with assumptions about the story. We assume that we know what it's about or what it teaches. And this morning, as you're sitting with your Bible open, I want you to pray again in the silence of your own heart that God would help you to think about this story in a fresh way. This parable has a lot to teach us about social justice and helping other people. But primarily, most importantly of all, it's a salvation story. In verse 25, you'll see that it says that a lawyer stands up and asks Jesus a question. The whole passage, including the parable, is about Jesus speaking to the lawyer, answering the, answering the lawyer, and showing him a deficiency in his own heart and showing him his need of grace. It's a salvation story. And as we look at this familiar yet badly understood salvation story, we're going to see three things. This is a really simple outline. In this passage and in this story, we need to highlight the question, the problem, and the solution. First of all, we're going to think about the question, and it's the question of the ages. The question of the ages. The reason this story isn't mainly about social justice is because of the question the lawyer asks in verse 25. Look at it with me. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. The, the, the lawyer asked Jesus a very interesting question. Doesn't ask it in good faith. He's putting Jesus to the test, but it's a very good question. It's a question that has echoed down the corridors of history as men and women and boys and girls have asked it. So sometimes in the Gospels, when Jesus is asked a question and he doesn't like it, he'll substitute another question in place of the question that's asked. He doesn't do that here. He takes this and accepts it as a perfectly good question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question of the ages. It's not just asked in Luke 10. And let me give you a few other examples. In Luke 18, the exact same question is asked. Listen to Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question was on people's minds, people's minds in Jesus' day. They were thinking about this issue. They, they wanted the right answer to the question, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? The question isn't just asked in Luke. It's actually all over the New Testament. In Luke's sequel in the book of Acts, we're told about Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He tells his listeners that the Messiah was handed over to the Romans. And what happens? The people all had a question. And the question was, what shall we do? In other words, we realize we're under the judgment of God here. What shall we do? And that's basically the same question the lawyer and the rich young ruler ask. In effect, it's a shortened version of what shall we do to be saved from God's wrath? And Peter's response is simple. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're not even done there. In Acts 16, we have the story of the Philippian jailer. His, his workplace, a prison, is shaken by an earthquake and the foundations of his life are shaken to the core as he thinks he's about to watch those he's supposed to be looking after escape from prison. In those days, if a jailer lost his convicts, the, the Roman government put the jailer to death. The jailer decides that he's going to end his own life before his bosses do. But before he does anything drastic, Paul calls out, don't do it, we're still here. And then they have a gospel conversation which reaches its climax with the question from the jailer in Acts 16 verse 30, what must I do to be saved? 
These questions indicate that people of all backgrounds, Jews, Gentiles, were concerned about the question of how someone can be accepted by God at the last judgment. How can a person be welcomed into the kingdom of God? How can a person inherit eternal life? The language of, of, kingdom, of the kingdom of God, eternal life, being saved, means essentially the same thing. The que- this question p- p- puts the lawyer in the same category as others who ask it in the Bible. That those who ask the question have, have different motivations, but they end up talking about what's actually important. They end up talking about the question of the ages. Now, why labor this and go on and on and give you so many examples? Simply because this remains the question of the ages. One of the main concerns of Christianity is that people as individuals come to a personal faith in Christ. That doesn't discount the corporate nature of our faith. It's simply to say that everybody needs to trust in Christ themselves. That's why the question the lawyer asks is the question of the ages. It's the most important question you can ever ask. It's more important than the question, if you're a young person, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to work at? What am I going to study? It's more important than than the question, will you marry me? Who am I going to marry? Who am I going to set up life with? It's more important than the question of where you're going to live, where you're going to set up your home. It's more important even than the question of where you go to church. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question of the ages. Are you asking that question? Have you thought about this question? Have you answered this question? It's a question that should be on your mind and heart. The fact that it's repeated throughout the New Testament tells you that it's a question of ultimate concern. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The question of the ages, the the, the problem of our hearts. But that's the second thing we see in this story and this parable, the problem of our hearts. Jesus does something really clever here. The lawyer has set a trap for him. He's put him to the test. And so everyone who's listening is thinking, how is, how is Jesus going to deal with this? How is, how is Jesus going to respond? But what Jesus does is he, is he flushes out the true state of the lawyer's heart. In response to the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, the, the lawyer sums it up in verse 27. And Jesus says, spot on. You've got it right. The lawyer basically summarizes the Ten Commandments. He covers the two tables of the Ten Commandments and says, what I need to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right. That is, that is spot on. But notice that that's not all that Jesus says. Look at verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this or do it. That's a very significant phrase in this passage. It pops up twice, verse 28 and verse 37. Twice the lawyer answers correctly, and both times Jesus says, okay, do it. Now, what's going on here? If we don't understand Jesus' answer to the lawyer, we're not going to understand this story. Jesus' concern is that while the lawyer can give the correct answer, he's not doing what he says. That's why Jesus says, do it twice, because the lawyer isn't doing it. The lawyer knows the right answer, but he's not living the right answer. And so Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to show the lawyer the sin of his heart. He tells the parable to show us the problem of our hearts. And this happens time and time again in the Bible when 
when David sinned against uh, Uriah and Bathsheba, that what, what happened? Nathan the prophet came and told him a story about a man who had stolen someone else's sheep. And what was the point of the story? It was to show David his sin. It's the same thing here. Jesus isn't telling the story of the Good Samaritan so that the lawyer can get involved in some social justice. He's telling the parable to the lawyer to expose his heart and to expose his sin. Now, Jesus doesn't go to the first table of the law, love God. He goes to the second table, love your neighbor, because he knows this man's heart. The man is a Jewish lawyer. He is utter contempt on a religious level and on a sectarian level for the Samaritans. The Jews and Samaritans had a long and bitter rivalry that stretched back some 700 years. They argued about which mountain they worshipped God on. They argued about which scripture they used. The Samaritans only used the first five books of the Bible. And they argued about other things as well. But Jesus tells a story about a priest and a Levite. People the Samaritan would have respected, would have looked up to, and how they failed to obey the commandments. But the Samaritan is the hero of Jesus' story, and that would have shocked the lawyer. Through the parable, Jesus does several things. First of all, he, he shows us how wide the extent of the, of the love command is. The command to love your neighbors extends to people we have contempt for, people we naturally just don't like. And secondly, he shows us how deep the command goes. The Samaritan in the parable is making his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to do something. We're not told what. But he stops. He spends an entire, an entire day with the guy who's been attacked and robbed. He medicates him. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He gives him two denarii, two days' wages for the innkeeper to take care of the guy. And then he says, look, if it costs more than that, on my way back, I'll stop and pay you the rest. The Samaritan shows how deep the command of mercy goes. And once the story is finished, Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you're right. Again, you've got it right. Now go and do the same thing. But he knows the lawyer's problem. And it's a problem of the heart. The, the, the lawyer knows the law inside out, back to front, upside down, but he's not living it. Well, what, what Jesus is teaching here is that giving the right answers won't get you into heaven. It will take more than just the right answers for you to inherit eternal life. It'll take more than the certificate you might have for, for full church attendance when you were a child. It'll take more than your ability to recite huge parts of the Bible to inherit eternal life. You have to live a perfect life, not just give the right answers and know the right answers, but live the right answers and do the right answers. And guess what? You haven't done that. And I haven't done that. And you can't do that. And I can't do that. In this section of Luke, Jesus answers the question of the ages and he exposes the problem of our hearts, but he doesn't leave us without hope. The final thing we see in this passage is the solution that's available. The solution that's available. The mistake people make when it comes to the parable of the Good Samaritan is that they think that the moral of the story is that good deeds get you to heaven. They absolutely don't. Respectable deeds, respectable living are the infallible marks of someone who is bound for heaven, but they don't earn our place there. The story has something to say about our moral obligation to our neighbors, but most of all, this story the whole thing is a display of the tender mercy of God. Here's a question for you. Who do you think bears most resemblance 
to you in the parable. If you were to identify yourself with someone from this parable, who would it be? The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. Here's the kicker. You can't understand this parable properly until you put yourself in the proper place in the story. By default, we read this story as if we are the people who pass by the helpless. You've heard those kinds of sermons. Will you show love to others or will you cross over to the other side? Will you ignore them? It's an important issue to think through. It's important to ask those questions. But when we step back and look at the bigger picture, we bear more resemblance to the helpless, unnamed, unidentified man dying by the side of the road than to the Samaritan. Now, why is that? Because unless someone saves the man, he dies. Unless someone comes to rescue him with sacrificial neighbor love, he will die. In the same way, we're in a desperate need of we're we're in desperate need of of someone to show us love in our sin sick condition. From that perspective, we can understand more clearly the solution that's available. What's what's the solution to the problem of our hearts? Who is the answer to the question of the ages? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the true good Samaritan. Think about it. He, He came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. He fulfilled the the, the requirements upon us and paid the price so that our soul's wounds, our, our heart's wounds, might be healed. It's only by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for us that we can inherit eternal life. He, he, he is the answer to the question of the ages. He solves the problem of our hearts. He is the solution that is available to everyone who would repent and believe in him. The question of the ages, the problem of our hearts, the solution that's available. That, that's, the, those are the things that the, that the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us about. The, the whole passage, including the parable, is about Jesus speaking to the lawyer, answering the lawyer, and, and showing him a deficiency in his own heart and showing him his need of grace. It's a salvation story. And it's a story that speaks to you if you're a Christian. If your heart has been touched by grace, by the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ, you will be moved to show that same love to others who don't deserve it. There will be practical things for you to do. There will be conversations for you to have. But because Jesus has loved you, the application for you, if you're a believer, is now you should go and do likewise. And this is a story that speaks to you if you're not a Christian. Luke is a great storyteller. The way he tells this story is terrific. Guided by the Spirit of God, he retells this encounter brilliantly. Here's why. We're left hanging as to what the lawyer does. He asks the question of the ages, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus exposes his heart. The lawyer isn't living the answers he's giving. And by exposing the lawyer's heart, Jesus is, however quietly and however implicitly, trying to make the lawyer see that, that he is the solution that's available. From Jesus' perspective, the whole point of the back and forth with the lawyer, the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is you cannot love God and your neighbor. That's why I am going to die. I'm going to die in your place so that you can believe in me and inherit eternal life. If Luke's account of this story was turned into a film, it would have an abrupt ending. Immediately after verse 37, the credits would roll and we would have all sorts of questions. Here's the question I have by verse 37. What did the lawyer do? 
What did the lawyer think? You'll see in verse 38 that Jesus moves on to another village, leaving the lawyer behind. What did the lawyer think about as he slinked away home from the crowd? What did he talk to his wife about when he went home that night? What did he think about as he lay in bed trying to get to sleep? Ultimately, what did he do with Jesus? Now, Luke doesn't tell us. And I think the point is probably that if you're not a Christian, you'll stand in the lawyer's shoes. He asks the question of the ages. And maybe you're asking that question at the minute. There's a lot happening in our world at the moment. Maybe it's making you think about eternity. Maybe it's putting things into perspective. It really is the most important question you can ever ask. And you've got to come up with an answer. Think of the moment when you'll stand before God in judgment. He will ask the question, why should you inherit eternal life? If your answer begins with, I did this, or I have done that, the conversation's over. But if your answer is, because I know the good Samaritan, and he has died so that I don't have to, you'll be welcomed into unending glory. You've got a heart problem. You're like the helpless, unnamed, unidentified man dying by the side of the road. And this story tells you that there's only one solution available. Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. He came to us while we were still his enemies. He met us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He fulfilled the requirements and paid the price so that our soul's wounds might be healed. So will you come to him today? The Good Samaritan who would welcome you into his open arms. We're going to close our service by singing a beautiful new hymn by City of Light. You've heard it over the past few weeks. It's called He Calls Me Friend. I've listened to it an awful lot over the past while. And I think my favorite part of it is verse two. I have a friend, a mighty friend, and and Jesus is his name. I shall not fear. He holds me near. His strength will keep me safe. And then the next verse goes on and says that Jesus is the kindest friend, the kindest friend. He's, he's the good Samaritan. We're dying because of our sin, and he has come to save us. So if you haven't come to him, if you haven't trusted him, will you come to him today? Will you turn and repent and believe and trust in Christ for the first time? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, our good Samaritan, the kindest friend we could ever know. Father, we thank you for all that he's done for us, for how he has died on the cross to save us. And we pray that having received mercy from him, those who know and love you, that that you would help us to, to go and show love to others, that we would go and do likewise. But we also pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Christ, that, that they would turn to you for the first time, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be at work in their hearts, would be exposing the problem of their hearts and pointing them to the only solution that's available. Father, we thank you for this story. We pray that it would linger in our hearts through the rest of this day, through the rest of this week. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.